It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So think about the last thing that made you angry. I'm driving along and... There's a really slow driver in front of you. And get stopped by a train. That's a common thing here for me. And you're just sitting there, wasting time. The kids are yelling in the back, and you realize... Ugh, it's going to set back my whole day. Your heart rate increases, your muscles get tense, and your mind starts to race. I'm going to be late to this meeting, which means that I'm going to be late to this meeting, and that's going to be embarrassing because that meeting is with someone important, right? And pretty soon you're fuming. You're yelling at your kids. You're yelling at the train. And so all of a sudden I've taken this, what feels like a relatively small thing, and I've exaggerated its importance into a really, really big, bad thing. This is psychologist Ryan Martin, and Ryan studies why and how people get angry. Anger is associated with a bunch of consequences, everything from physical aggression, physical fights, verbal fights, property damage, cardiovascular disorders, uh, other negative emotions, substance abuse problems. I mean, when people have experienced anger too often in great intensity, they are likely to experience some sort of interpersonal or physiological problems. However, uh, despite all of that, I think a lot of people misunderstand anger. It's this built-in emotion. Much like sadness, much like fear, much like a lot of other emotions, it's something that is universal. Ryan Martin picks up the idea from the TED stage. It's something we all feel, and it's something they can relate to. We've been feeling it since the first few months of life when we didn't get what we wanted and our cries of protests, things like, what do you mean you won't pick up the rattle, Dad? I want it. We feel it throughout our teenage years, as my mom can certainly attest to with me. Sorry, mom. We feel it to the very end. In fact, anger has been with us at some of the worst moments of our lives. It's a natural and expected part of our grief. But it's also been with us at some of the best moments of our lives, with those special occasions like weddings and vacations, often marred by these everyday frustrations, bad weather, travel delays that feel horrible in the moment but then are ultimately forgotten when things go okay. So I have a lot of conversations with people about their anger, and it's through those conversations that I've learned that many people, and I bet many people in this room right now, you see anger as a problem. You see the way it interferes in your life, the way it damages relationships, maybe even the ways it's scary. And while I get all of that, I see anger a little differently, and today I want to tell you something really important about your anger, and it's this. Anger is a powerful and healthy force in your life. It's good that you feel it. You need to feel it. So anger is an emotion. It's a feeling. Everything from maybe the mild frustration you feel when you can't find your car keys to the intense rage you feel when someone treats you really, really horribly. It's really separate from many of the behaviors that people oftentimes associate with anger, um, like violence and aggression. Those things come along with anger sometimes, Uh, But people can do all sorts of things when they're angry. We also know that it's a motivator and that it encourages people to act in positive pro-social ways. Anger can fuel, whether it's political movements or other sorts of problem solving, um, it really exists in us to alert us to injustice and then to energize us to respond to that injustice. Anger is universal, but it's also a complicated emotion. We tend to think of anger as an irrational response, and we think of people who get angry as unhinged. 
And when it's uncontrollable, anger can be really destructive. The thing is, we also need it. Anger tells us when something feels wrong or unjust or unfair. So today on the show, we're going to explore different sides of anger, what it is, when it happens, who's allowed to feel it, and why. And for Ryan Martin, the first step towards reframing anger was to think of it as something essential. I think if you think of emotions as I do, they exist in us to alert us to things. So my sadness, which also feels bad in the moment, it alerts me to loss. Uh, My fear, which feels bad in the moment, alerts me to danger. My anger alerts me to injustice. And so really the purpose it serves is to tell me to focus on something and says, okay, you're angry right now. That must mean something. All right. I understand that. Um, But in your talk, you say that many people in the room listening, right, at that moment see anger as a problem. And to that, I would say, yes, I I totally agree. I see it as a (laughs) problem in others, in myself. Like, anger, to me, does all of these things. It, It interferes with my life and makes things more complicated. And it causes so much stress. So on a day to day basis, why do we need it? So if you think about kind of the real, real basic reasons why we get angry, one of the most basic reasons is when our goals are blocked. And we actually can study this in animals. We can study it in infants. I mean, when you take an object that an infant or toddler wants and you put it just out of their reach or behind glass or something like that, you will see them get visibly frustrated. You'll see them start to cry. You'll see them pound on the glass or make a fist and, and things like that. Um, And that extends into adulthood. One of the reasons why driving can be such an angering situation is because we have a goal. And all of those things, they interfere with our obtaining that goal. Now, achieving goals is pretty important to human beings. It's pretty important to all species. And so anger is one of the mechanisms that allows human beings to kind of motivate us to plow through those frustrations, to get break through that and to obtain our goal. Now, whether it's minor or major, whether it's general or specific, we can tease out some common themes, right? We get angry in situations that are unpleasant, that feel unfair, where our goals are blocked, that could have been avoided, and that leave us feeling powerless. This is a recipe for anger. But you can also tell that anger is probably not the only thing we're feeling in these situations, right? Anger doesn't happen in a vacuum. We can feel angry at the same time that we're scared or sad or feeling a host of other emotions. But here's the thing. These provocations, they aren't making us mad, at least not on their own. And we know that because if they were, we'd all get angry over the same things, and we don't. The reasons I get angry are different than the reasons you get angry, so there's got to be something else going on. What is that something else? Well, we know what we're doing and feeling at the moment of that provocation matters. We call this the pre-anger state. Are you hungry? Are you tired? Are you anxious about something else? Are you running late for something? When you're feeling those things, those provocations feel that much worse. But what matters most, it's not the provocation, it's not the pre-anger state, it's this. It's how we interpret that provocation. It's how we make sense of it in our lives. When you start to recognize your body responding to something 
in a way that most people would respond. What do you do? Do you are you do you become aware of it? Do you stop? Do you breathe? Do you like how do you respond? I think this is where I oftentimes encourage from people this sort of search for insight. So when you notice that's happening to you, um, first thing I encourage people to do is think about why it's happening. And oftentimes people will externalize that. They'll put it on the thing and say, well, this is making me mad. And that's good. That's a good start. But then the next part of it is, okay, how am I interpreting that thing that might be exacerbating Hmm. that? And that's where you can identify the things like catastrophizing or maybe I'm being too demanding or maybe I've labeled that person in a way that's unfair. And so once you've kind of established that piece, I think then is the intentional goal of like deciding what you want to do with it. That might be, okay, now is not a good time for me to lose it. So I need to take deep breaths. I need to think about something else. Yeah. Um, Or you might say, well, you know what, am I catastrophizing? If I am, then I need to catch myself here and think about what is the realistic outcome? Is this train going to make me five minutes late or is it going to ruin my whole day? Is there a way I can fix this? And so then you might channel that anger into solving that problem. Hmm. So, okay, so Ryan, as an adult, right, I can regulate my behavior, right? And I don't, like, I don't generally show anger to to friends or to colleagues, but, I, you know, I can get angry. And I mm-hmm. hate that I can get angry or frustrated with my kids, you know? I, I, and I feel so jealous of people who don't get angry easily. Yeah. I mean, I, the good news is I don't know that there's too many of those people out there who don't get angry easily. Yeah. I guess what I would say is there's a limited capacity for human change as they go on. And so for people like you or I, we might just be sort of stuck with the amount of anger we feel um, throughout the day. And then it really becomes a question of how we deal with it. Are we dealing with it in the healthiest of ways? Are we experiencing consequences because of it? Um, If we're not, then, you know, honestly, it might be okay. Because the problem is, at some level, for me, for example, to feel angry less would mean on some level that I stop caring about some things that are really, really important to me that I don't want to let go of. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes we have to acknowledge that, okay, this is a thing I can't fix, and I need to somehow find a way to go on and accept this. Um, Acceptance is one of the most, I think, complicated psychological processes when it comes to anger because... Sometimes it works, and it's associated with some positive outcomes. Sometimes, though, acceptance ends up being more like suppression, right? And it's really just someone pretending this thing doesn't bother them anymore. And that's not really a healthy way to go. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious about anger as a motivator for social change, right? Because it can be. I mean, it can motivate people to do really destructive things Mm -hmm. and and to do really constructive things. Mm So I guess I'm a little reluctant to say, like, yes, anger, look, it can spur people to, you know, change the world for the better. But right. uh, it can also spur people to to go to war and to do really bad things, right? Absolutely. And, yeah, it encourages people to go to war. It also encourages people to pass policies that, you know, maybe I don't support and, and things like that. So I don't know that the outcomes are always inherently good, but it definitely motivates people to care about big political issues and to embrace policy changes and and to go after policy changes. Yeah. By and large, I would discourage people from wanting to live without anger because I think on some level it means that they don't care enough about a lot of things going on in their lives and a lot of 
people in their lives and that to really be passionate about things, to be passionate about goals, to be passionate about the community we live in means that you're going to experience frustration when things don't work out the way you hope they do. And, and that's kind of a good thing. That's Ryan Martin. He's a psychology professor at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about rethinking anger. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about anger, what it means, why we have it, and where it comes from. But there's one important question here. Who actually gets to be angry? Who gets to be angry with power? Who gets to be angry with recognition? Who gets to be angry with accolades? This is Soraya Shamali. I mean, look at our last election, right? Bernie yeah. Sanders and Donald Trump could be really enraged and they could tap into populist anger and they could look unruffled and red in the face and pounding podiums. That's a, an immense advantage in the political world. For women to do that is fundamentally still uncomfortable for people. Sarai is a writer and the director of the Women's Media Center Speech Project. So a woman like Hillary Clinton, who tried to remain unruffled and calm and didn't show that kind of intense anger, was then inauthentic and unlikable. And, you know, it's just this very narrow path of expression so we're, we are, as women, told that we have all of this emotionality, and then that emotionality is weaponized against us if we seek power or have ambition or exercise authority. Which, Soraya says, starts happening at a really early age. For her, it was in elementary school. I remember one year, the thing I heard the most from adults was, lower your voice, like you're being <laughs> just too loud in general. <laughs> and then the next year which I think was maybe fifth grade, I won the school prize for courtesy. <laughs> and in retrospect, it really does make me laugh because I think, here I am, I'm being told, you're too loud, you're too boisterous, you're making too much noise, you're getting too much attention. And I was like, well, apparently this is bad. It wasn't really until I was in my 40s that I kind of came to and thought, what is going on here? Because... The way I'm feeling is not X, it's not Y, it's not healthy for sure, so what is it? And it took me a long time to say, oh, you know what that is? I forgot what that was. I remember it as a very young child, but it's really anger. <laughs> and in my experience, a lot of us are taught to do what I did, which is to set it aside. Soraya Shamali picks up her idea from the TED stage. Think about my mother for a minute. When I was 15, I came home from school one day, and she was standing on a long veranda outside of our kitchen, holding a giant stack of plates. Imagine how dumbfounded I was when she started to throw them like Frisbees <laughs> into the hot, humid air. When every single plate had shattered into thousands of pieces on the hill below, she walked back in, and she said to me cheerfully, how was your day? Now, you can see, you can see how a child would look at an incident like this and think that anger is silent and isolating, destructive and even frightening. Especially, though, when the person who's angry is a girl or a woman. 
The question is why. You know, my my mom was not a person who could express anger at all <laughs> uh, because she thought that defied her sense of being a good person and a lady. <laughs> and I've heard this from other people over and over and over again, that it's so incompatible, the feeling of anger, with the sense of femininity. So in girls, even when they show anger, people have a tendency to say they're sad. Mm-hmm. And sadness and anger are very different as attributes, as behaviors. Yeah, it's interesting because um, anger is a human emotion. Right. We, we all, it's like we're all born, we all die. We all, uh, most of us have the ability to experience sadness and happiness um, and anger. Mm-hmm. It, is, it, is a, it is a universal human emotion. Essentially what you're saying is that it's also a privilege. It's, yes. it's, a, it's an emotion that is a privilege. It's an entitlement. You know, and we do all have this emotion, and it's a very important one. It's a signal emotion, right? I mean, as humans, if we didn't have anger, what would we do in the face of threat or indignity, uh, injustice? You know, anger is the emotional response to those circumstances, hmm. and we are asking we're asking entire swaths of people to pretend they don't have anger or to not show anger. Yeah, I mean, we just heard from Ryan Martin about how anger is there to alert us to things, right? How, you know, it's really important to feel it and to find healthy ways to express it. But actually, it's not that simple, right? Like, that privilege doesn't apply to most people. No, I don't I don't think it applies to most people. And I think this idea of anger as a moment in time that is more likely to be rage-filled mm. is really unhelpful to most people because, in fact... Anger for a lot of people is this simmering quality that they don't name, and it becomes manifest in their bodies, right? Mm. So it will come as absolutely no surprise, probably, to the people in this room that women report being angrier in more sustained ways and with more intensity than men do. But we also have to find socially palatable ways to express the intensity of emotion that we have. So we do several things. We use minimizing language. We're frustrated. No, really, it's okay. We self-objectify and lose the ability to even recognize the physiological changes that indicate anger. Mainly, though, we get sick. Anger has now been implicated in a whole array of illnesses that are casually dismissed as women's illnesses. Higher rates of chronic pain, autoimmune disorders, disordered eating, mental distress, anxiety, self-harm, depression. Anger affects our immune systems, our cardiovascular systems. Some studies even indicate that it affects mortality rates, particularly in black women with cancer. I am sick and tired of the women I know being sick and tired. Our anger brings great discomfort, but we have an enormous power in this. Because feelings are the purview of our authority and people are uncomfortable with our anger, we should be making people comfortable with the discomfort they feel when women say no unapologetically. We can take emotions and think in terms of competence and not gender. How do we even start to change that dynamic? 
So it requires, really requires, a social commitment, a societal commitment to rethinking the way we socialize our children, starting at the earliest ages, right? Because mm. we have a society that is remarkably gendered. Our labor is gendered. Our language is gendered. Our expectations of people's roles and responsibilities are gendered. They're also racialized, but even within demographic groups, um, different ethnic groups, we still see the imposition of patriarchal gender norms. And we still expect boys to be boys and girls to be girls. And these differentials really matter. They they begin so early. And so I would say, yes, we need to start as early as possible with thinking through what all of that means. I, I mean, we're in this kind of moment, right, where there is actually an opportunity for for women leaders to express anger and for that not to be judged maybe mm-hmm. in the way that it was in previous years, right? Like anger is just the rational response, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, anger could be a force that could bring about much-needed change, right? Well, I mean, I think that's undeniable that resistance to the Trump administration has been led by angry women. I think that, you know, whether you're talking about the science strike or teacher strikes or, you know, the the various marches that have been held, some the most populated in history, as far as some some recordings are, you know, you see the power of anger and you see the power of peaceful anger, you know. It never ceases to amaze me. I just had to do this again for a presentation. If you Google anger or angry, the first images you get are of white men yelling or breaking things. If you Google anger management, which is a whole other topic of conversation, you also get pictures of white men breaking things. And, you know, first of all, most of us are not white men breaking things. We don't experience anger that way. And in order for us to understand the power of anger as a social force, we need to recognize all of the ways it manifests itself, not just this one narrow cast image of this kind of person unhinged, because that's unhelpful to all of us. That's Soraya Shamali. She's the writer of the book Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. You can see her full talk at TED.com. So when you think about the whole concept of anger, do you think of it as, as an inherently negative thing? Not at all. For me, when I think of anger, I don't mean hostility, resentment, hatred. For me, when I think of anger, I think about passion. This is Lisa Fritsch. Something has disturbed you. Something has triggered within you a consciousness that there's imbalance here. There's unfairness here. Something's not right here. Something should be done about this. That's what I generally mean by anger. Lisa is a former talk radio host, and as an African-American woman, she's no stranger to people labeling her as angry. I think the word has been confused to mean that I'm bitter. I have this festering hatred and hostility, a chronic kind of resentment towards someone or something. And Most people are able to express anger without that attachment to it. But somehow women, and Black women in particular, 
we might not even be angry. We could just be simply passionate. We could have gotten excited. We could be concerned and slightly more animated and emotive about something. And then people go from that immediately to anger when a lot of times you're not even angry. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> this actually happened to Lisa back in 2014 when she ran for governor of Texas. Here's more from Lisa Fritch on the TED stage. It all started when I was running for governor of Texas in one of those war room sessions. For those of you who don't know, the war room is where the core campaign team comes together. We vet all the dirt, we dish out everything. In this particular war room session, I was preparing to introduce an immigration policy that I was proposing. I knew it was going to be controversial because I was proposing to give dignity and hope to immigrants in Texas. And if you may, as you may know, this is very defiant of the status quo. So I was prepared for the pushback, and I knew I was coming in also balancing a good blend of logic and humanity. So just as I'm getting ready to talk, I did raise my voice because I got excited. I started to lean in. I was really intense. I used my hands. And I spoke with fervor because I was passionate. I wanted my team to know these words had a mission. Just as I was cresting to my most important point, I get the one of my main guys, one that I love the most, I even nicknamed him. He said, Lisa, whoa, you need to back off. You look like the angry black woman. And I'm going to tell you, a heat hit my throat. Once he hit me with that label, the tables completely turned. It was no longer about this wonderful, game-changing policy on immigration, but it became about how I could, under no circumstances, in any shape or form, be seen on the campaign trail as the angry black woman. But I'm going to be honest with you, I got a little angry for not being able to show the passion I intended to show. More than that, not to discuss this immigration policy, and it left me tight-lipped and frustrated and thinking, why? Why does it always have to be anger? How do you, how do you think these anger stereotypes affect how African-American women think about themselves and their place in the world? I think they're very effective. Unfortunately, a lot of times at keeping us silent, keeping us from going for things and keeping us out of places where, frankly, we should be. It's, it's way too effective. And there's so many more of us out there but we haven't had the access and an opportunity to be there and to show up and be seen. There's so many more women like me who have something to give and bring to the table that so many uh, people our community are missing out on in finance and technology and political leadership, community leadership, because they might not look, sound, or act the way that the status quo acts they are not perceived as having value to add. And that's what's wrong with that. Our world is missing out on the wealth of knowledge and experience of Black women. I always find it interesting how we marvel and raise up successful Black men who attribute a lot of their success to being raised by a single Black woman. And we do this without considering all of the leadership, management, and skills and diplomacy, this woman must have had to do this on her own. And two, without considering 
all of the things that must have indeed made her angry, but angry enough <laughs> to do better for herself and her family. And that's the truth about anger and the angry black woman that we need to accept and think about. Let me tell you who the angry black woman really is. She's awesome. She's awesome because she's likely had to uphill climb her whole life to get to where she is today. She's dedicated. She takes up causes that many of us don't realize and informs us what can matter and what's important in the world. She's real. I want the freedom to be the angry black woman because I look at where we would be without all the angry black women who've come before us who put progress over posture. The angry black woman is an essential voice to us as we speak up and out, break down barriers, and push humanity forward. When I am tempted to back down, speak more softly, or grin and bear it and just move along, I think about what they've done. I think about how they saw a situation that made them angry, and they took a stand that we're all grateful for today. So when I think about that, I don't back down, but I give myself, I say, sister, no, you don't have time for that. You have to rise up. And I rise. How do you think the world and our society and our country would be different if women, especially women of color, were able to freely and openly express their anger and passion without fear of being criticized or worse? Well, I think there'd be a lot fewer things to be angry about, first of all. I think when people have the freedom to express what they need, what they're missing, to share their painful experiences without being judged that it was their fault, until we can get to a point where we hear another person share something painful without thinking that they're a whiner and all of that, or ask for help without attaching some type of what are you trying to take from me to it? We won't get past that. So yes, the world will be a much better place when women can fight for things, fight for equality without being seen as aggressive. When we can start saying, wow, look at that leadership quality that she has. She's a really hard worker. She's really strong. I didn't see it that way before. Let me think about it. That's the work we have to do before a lot of this effective change can happen. That's Lisa Fritch. You can find her full talk at ted.npr.org. On the show today, ideas about rethinking anger. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, rethinking anger and the ways this powerful emotion is sometimes misunderstood. One of the things I love about some of the anger research is it's completely counterintuitive. Who would think that expressing anger and getting people fired up has a good short-term effect? This is Dan Mushabi. He teaches at San Jose State University's business school. And specifically, he teaches about the qualities that make a good leader. And Dan says anger is actually one of them. Absolutely. There's some research that shows that there is a sweet spot for anger, that anger can make some leaders more effective if being used properly. It can actually lead to better negotiation outcomes. 
anger can be a powerful social communication tool for actually moving individuals and organizations forward. Dan Moshavi picks up his idea from the TED stage. Imagine the following exchanges. How was work today? It was pretty good. This report I've been working on for the last month, gave it to my boss, she read it, got really angry. It was awesome. <laughs> or, how'd that job interview go? Oh, it's terrific. The guy I'd be working for, quite an angry man. I hope I get the job. So why don't we have these conversations? Because we view anger as a fundamentally negative emotion. But I want to make the case to you today that some of you would actually perform better for a leader who displays more negative emotions, including anger. And the reason is something psychologists call epistemic motivation, which is the inclination to thoroughly understand an experience. Individuals who have high levels of epistemic motivation tend to focus in on the meaning behind the emotion. They might say to themselves, hmm, my boss is angry. I wonder why. Oh, maybe I'm not performing all that well. And then they would seek to modify their performance. So next time you're at work, and your boss gets angry, ask yourself, are you focusing in on the emotion or the meaning behind the emotion? If it's the latter, you may perform better for a boss who gets angry. So it seems like the model today for like a really successful, healthy workplace is collaborative, is transparent, there's respect, kindness is a big thing now. Absolutely. But then I hear your talk, and then you say that some people actually want to work for angry people, and I'm thinking, who wants to, how would they want to do that? Yeah, there are some people that respond better to anger in terms of it internally motivating them than to, let's say, a cheerful person. Hmm. You remember Bobby Knight, the basketball coach? Of course. At Indiana for years, Texas Tech, right? He was known for just being a really angry, angry person. Yes. I am not here to get my beat on Monday. Did you see us play? I mean, if you're not going to try to motivate somebody after that, I should even get paid. I don't want to play for the guy. No, of course not. But he successfully recruited really talented athletes who did, who somehow said that is the style that works for me, that motivates me, that I respond to. Now, I'm not advocating that that's a healthy way to be. Sure. What the upsides of anger really are about is being strategic. It's timing, it's degree, it's intensity, all those things matter. And remember that anger doesn't necessarily need to be directed at an individual. You can get an organization fired up by being angry about some external circumstance. And so utilizing anger and directing that outward can actually rally people with you. The research shows that folks who occasionally show anger that's justified are actually respected more at work than those who don't show any anger at all. Because it's tied to this accountability issue, hmm. right? If somebody is really not performing and not behaving, and I just, at least it's perceived that I'm letting it go, that actually hurts how people view me. But you have to calibrate that anger, right? Like, we, we're in the 21st century. Even when you show anger, like, you have to do it with respect. Calibration is absolutely key, right? If you're somebody who every day 
gets irritated and angry with a coworker, that's not a good thing because they can't regulate their own emotions. But regulating emotions doesn't mean that we're flat. It doesn't mean that we don't show any emotion. It just means we adjust the emotion to the situation. So we make a judgment call that a particular situation kind of almost requires or would benefit from a certain kind of emotional response. Interesting. And so that's why occasionally flashing anger can be considered an emotionally intelligent response. So here's the thing, Dan. The power of anger is like, it's like being under the influence of drugs almost. Mm -hmm. It pushes us to make the worst assumptions about the person or the thing that made us angry. Absolutely. And there's all kinds of tools that we can actually use to check assumptions. Like like what? Like what tools? Well, for instance, you know, let's just say you were late for a meeting and I am angry about that. I might say, a guy, second time this week, you've been late to a meeting. I'm assuming you don't care that much about what we're trying to accomplish here. By stating that assumption you give people an opportunity to say that's correct or that's not correct. So you would say, hey, Dan, you know, it's the second time you've been late to the meeting this week. I'm assuming you want this company to collapse, that you are actually trying to undermine us directly. And you would say, no, I was just dropping my kid off at daycare. Right. And then I would have completely <laughs> been wrong on my, on my assumptions, right? <laughs> <laughs> the way you framed it is a little more comical uh, than the way it often plays out, but absolutely. So, I mean, if we were to kind of reframe, we are living in a, I think it's fair to say, a fairly angry moment from a geopolitical perspective. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, okay, there's a lot of anger around the world. Let's say you have two groups of people who are really angry at the other group of people, right? Let's say, Let's say people who voted for Trump and people who didn't vote for Trump. And and I think it's fair to say that in both these groups, there's a genuine hatred for people in the other group. How would you actually take that anger and turn it into something constructive? It depends on the people. In this particular case, the rhetoric is largely what I would put in the category of destructive anger. The word liberal now has a, a, a connotation like if you're if you're a liberal that somehow it makes you a you know at least in some circles a really bad person or if you're a, a rhino a Republican in name only same thing right so those terms now we're using in a very innate characteristics lens it's something about them mm. right so if we want to change the dynamic it's not that you can't be angry it's just start from more situational based assumptions. Hmm. You've seen examples of this, which is you create situations of dialogue where you can see the other side as not just a, a set of positions, but as human, mm. uh, and who actually shows up in the world with varying degrees of anger across a variety of issues, and engage those individuals uh, can have a, a, a huge positive effect. Now, overall, there's huge, huge downsides to anger. But to universally suggest that anger is all bad all the time is just not consistent with what we know. The moral to our story is not to go out and select a bunch of angry, emotionally intelligent leaders in order to achieve world peace. Timing, intensity, motive, and approach are keys to the upsides of anger. So next time you experience anger, either your own or someone else's, 
search for that sweet spot. What you find may pleasantly surprise you. Thanks so much. That's Dan Moshavi. He's the dean of San Jose State University's business school. You can see his entire talk at ted.npr.org. On the show today, ideas about rethinking anger, its upsides and downsides. I like to say that anger is a wonderful sign and a terrible strategy. Most of the time, I think anger is really good at helping us identify uh, things that we need to attend to that are troubling to us, that bother us, you know, potential threats. The problem is that the, the typical sort of responses that are motivated by anger, if I, I translate that directly into behavior, then we end up saying or doing things that cause problems in our relationships or in the workplace or whatever context we find ourselves in, you know. This is Russell Colts. I'm a clinical psychologist and a professor at Eastern Washington University. And part of Russell's job is to help other people sort through their anger. But it's also something he's struggled with a lot. You got it. Wow. <laughs> and and so <laughs> so and this is I mean that's but I mean this is kind of exciting, right? Because you are able to uh, identify that in yourself because you've studied this phenomenon. And you know that you you have this. It's like it's like you can. Oh be yeah, your own, no, it's your very own clear. Pa- I yeah. can see it as it's happening. <laughs> yeah. For Russell, managing his anger is a daily exercise. But it took him a while to even realize it was a problem. Here's Russell on the TED stage. My son was about about three months old. And I was home taking care of him one day. And it was a day in which I had a lot of work that I really wanted to get done. And so the parents among you will not be surprised to find out that on this particular day, my son took about an hour and a half longer than normal to go to sleep right, for his morning nap. And I remember, like, finally he goes to sleep and I'm gently setting him down in the crib and tiptoeing out of the room. And just as I get in the other room and I sit down to work, the cry... And with that cry, I was filled with anger. It took everything in me not to rush across the hall, stand over his crib, and yell, why can't you just sleep? Luckily, that didn't happen. But something else did. The intensity of the anger I felt at my infant son for doing nothing more than like, you know, not sleeping at the exact moment I wanted him to sleep. It shocked me awake, and I knew that if I was going to be anything like the sort of father I wanted my son to have, that I had to do something about my anger. Wow. So there are obviously people who um, have have a more angry or irritable temperament, and there are other people who just don't. Yeah, like it doesn't yeah. – they don't seem to get so upset or bothered by things that other people might get bothered by. And I look at those people and I'm like, oh my God, how can I have more of you? How can I be more like <laughs> Wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be nice? You know, like, yeah. yeah. What, what explains that? Is it just the way they're wired? What is it? Well, it's, it's, it's a combination of things. So probably they came into the world with a system that was not tuned to activate in terms of irritability and anger quite so easily. And then, probably because they had those genetics from their parents, they likely grew up in a home where anger wasn't modeled, Mm. 
where good emotion regulation was. So, you know, the moment we're born, all that that kind of genetic stuff we have becomes either activated or not by the environments in which we find ourselves. Mm. And so if you have an irritable temperament and you're raised in a home that tends to be more volatile, then that really sets you up then to struggle with irritability and anger uh, going forward. You know, it's interesting because... Uh, for me as a parent, right, and, and as a person who did experience anger and, and irritability as a child and saw that modeled, um, you you know, you I think a lot of parents try to parent in opposition to the way they were parented. Um, but time and again with my children, I really i am calm. I ask them to do something. I ask them again. I ask them again. I ask them 10 times. And then on yeah, the eleventh yeah. time, I just lose it, and I say, "Get your shoes on right away." Yeah, and, and then yeah. I feel, and it works, and it works, and they respond to it, and they get scared, they put their shoes on, and I feel horrible. I feel like the worst person on the planet. Yeah, I mean, the way anger activates us, you know, what our anger is telling us is, you have to act now. Yeah, you have to. There's a felt urgency around it, and that urgency tends to overwhelm the part of us that could be reflective Mm. and, uh, you know, those sorts of things. Hmm. Uh, We also, when we're angry, we think more superficially and then we'll tend to kind of incorporate that information and then we will hold on to it and we won't let it go. Yeah. So, so let's, let's, uh, let's say that anger or having an angry or irritable temperament is a, a, an Achilles heel in life. It means that you actually have to kind of double down on managing it, right? And so mm-hmm. what do you do? How? I mean, you you have this you have this gene, like you have this and you're a psychologist. So um yeah, help tell what do you do? Well, I think you you address it the way you address any potential vulnerability you might have. You know, you you take helpful efforts to try and minimize the impact on your life. And I think the first thing we have to do is just kind of interrupt the momentum of it. Hmm interrupt the momentum to create some space for whatever comes next. So I remember, you know, it's it's been a year or two, but my wife and I had gotten into an argument and I was really angry. And I went down, I've got a room in my basement that's filled with vinyl albums and guitars. And I go and went in there and put on a record and I just sat there for a while, kind of calming down. And after a, a few minutes, my wife came and knocked on the door and opened up and said, would it be okay, you know, if I came in? And I said, don't take this the wrong way, but I'm not ready for you to come in yet. And and I want you to know that when I closed that door, I I wasn't shutting you out. I was shutting me in because I know that whatever comes out of me right now is going to be hurtful. So I just need a little more time. And so I took another 10 or 20 minutes, listened, finished the side of my record. And then I was able to go out and say, okay, you know, let's reconnect. Let's talk about this, whatever. Let's try an exercise really quickly, if you would. I'd like you to bring to mind a situation in which you recently struggled. And as you look back on that struggling version of you in that situation, try to look back with compassion, the way you would relate to someone that you dearly cared about and wanted to help. If you could go back and whisper into the ear of that vulnerable version of you in that situation, what support or encouragement might you offer to help yourself be at your best in that moment? You see, that's compassion. To notice, wow, I'm really 
angry right now. I'm really struggling. This is really hard. Anger tries to convince us that we have to act right now, but we don't have to believe it. We can take a moment, work to balance our emotions first, and then work with the situation. That's true strength. That's compassion. Thanks. That's Russell Colts. He's a clinical psychologist who specializes in compassion-focused therapy. You can find his full talk at ted.npr.org. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our show on anger this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, J.C. Howard, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and Katie Monteleone, with help from Daniel Shukin and Emmanuel Johnson. Our intern is Kiara Brown. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.